So last summer, I got on a, a wild hair. Not really sure what got into me. But I began toying around with, um, I would like to call it making things. It would probably be more appropriate to say I was moving things around, you know. But anyway, I made some shelves for some photos in the house and some stuff in the backyard and um, started working on a picnic table at the end of the summer and I'm going to finish it when the weather breaks and all. But what I really probably enjoyed more than actually doing it, perhaps, was watching other people do it. And so, you know how that is, right? You can get on YouTube for hours and hours and hours, you know, and, and it's like a wormhole, you know, you just fall into it. It's a black hole. It sucks you in. You can never escape. And, uh, and it's crazy what people can build. And not only that, but it's crazy what they can use to build things, to make things, you know? There was a guy, and you might have seen this recently, it's kind of been around. Uh, there was a guy who made the body of his, his electric guitar out of colored pencils. I mean, I would think of that, wouldn't you? Right? There was, there was um, you know, a guy that he, he um, for his, like, an entry area into his home, instead of putting down tile, like most of us do, or carpet, or wood, or even plastic wood, he used pennies. Have you seen that one? Yeah. He put down pennies, and then he, you know, he coated it and everything like that. Again, that's what I would do with all my extra pennies, wouldn't you? You know? I mean, it'd be better to use half dollars or silver dollars. It'd just take up more space and go faster, wouldn't it? You know? And then, um, and then also here, you know, a few years ago, a bunch of, of, of us through the ministry in Haiti were, some ladies and all, were having jewelry made out of magazine pages, correct? The beads were made out of the magazine pages, right? And then also, the ones that I really like the most are when you see a guy and he takes a log, right? I mean, like a log, like that, you know? And he puts it in, in, on those tools and those things, and then he just starts spinning it. But the biggest lesson I learned in watching all that was that, like, if you're going to make something and you're going to do a good job of it, you have to have the right tools, you know? And I never have the right tools. I never do them. I think I'll buy that one time, and I won't know what to do with it. And so it'll just sit there. So I don't, I don't do that, you know? But these guys have the right tools. They have tools that I didn't even know were tools. But it's interesting because God does the same thing. He takes something like as plain and ordinary as a log, you know, that just, it's just a piece of wood, it's a round piece of wood. It doesn't even have to be a round piece of wood. It can be a different type of shape of a piece of wood. And he t- takes that and he takes something that is very ordinary and something that's very unnoticeable and something we would walk past every single day and then he transforms it into something useful and something noticeable and something that people stop and go, wow, like where did that come from? You know, we're all familiar with the passage at Romans 12, verse 2, that speaks of transforming us, you know. And there's other scriptures that do that as well. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, it speaks about that we can be mirrors that brightly reflect the glory of the Lord. And as the Spirit of the Lord works within us, it says we become more and more like Him. And that right there is what He's doing. He's taking people who are, are ungodly and He's shaping them and framing them, and making them, and remaking them, transforming them into the image of the most godly. So he says there in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that he's making us to become more and more like Jesus. And then later on in chapter 8, 
um, verse 29, he says that from the very beginning, God decided that those who came to him should become like his son, Jesus. And then in Galatians 4.19, he speaks about Christ being formed in us. So we're supposed to be like him in our actions, in our thoughts, in our words. Our affections are supposed to be like his affections. Our priorities are supposed to be his priorities. And, and we've talked recently about how we're supposed to be marked by service for others and love for others, loving the unlovable or loving the ones who are hard to love, the, one, the ones who don't want to be loved. We're supposed to pick up our cross daily and to die to ourselves like he did. And then when you think about that, when you're like thinking about yourself and you go, how, how does that happen? Is that ever really going to be possible for me? Well, God is not that different than any master craftsman that we've talked about that you might know about, where he turns the ordinary into the extraordinary because he uses the right tools to do it. There are are a vast array of tools that God's going to use in our lives to shape us and to form us. Um, There are three primary ones, though. He uses his word, he uses his spirit, and he uses his people, and he uses prayer as as well. But for today, we want to spend the rest of our time talking about the way that God uses the tool of God's people in each other's lives to accomplish his purpose and to taking us from being a piece of wood a lump of clay, and transforming it into something beautiful. And how he uses people to do that. If you remember last week, I talked about relationships and how God values relationships. He values the relationship between himself and us, and and then he values the relationships that we have with each other. And we believe that God has placed us into the relationships we have on purpose. You know, I've said it before, and I'm just going to continue to say it again, because none of us are in this room here today by accident. We are here in this room today by God's intention and purpose for whatever he's doing in your particular life. And for those of you who call crossing a home, you know, we are here together, and we're knit together, really. That's what the scripture teaches. We're knit together because it's important for us to be in relationship with one another. And so there's not a single person in this room who is unimportant. None none at all. Every person serves a purpose by God's intention and his grand divine plan for all of eternity. We're here for a reason. But there is this context here where one of the most important tools that God uses to shape us and everything are those people around us. And, And in that context, you know, what he does is God uses people around us and, and often he uses us as, as perhaps a chisel or perhaps like sandpaper where he grabs hold of a piece of sandpaper and he says, and he says something like, uh, come here, Brubaker, you're sandpaper today. Go to your wife. Wait a minute, let's turn that around. Karen, go to your husband. You're sandpaper today. I put you in a relationship because Scott needs some attention. And just go. Can you give us a list, Karen, of what he needs attention in, please? Thank you very much. 
It's a long list. We don't have enough time. We'd go over again. So let's, we won't go there today. But put it in an email sent to the rest of the church, all right? There you go. And he says, and he says I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you in a relationship on purpose. And the purpose of that relationship, at one level, is simply to take off the sharp edge. And that's why I have you here. That's why I want you to be friends with this person. That's why you're sitting next to the person you're sitting next to today. That's why that person's in this room here today with you. Because that person is here on purpose for you. Or maybe you are here for that person. Whichever the case may be. Sorry, Bill. All right. Sometimes we're the sandpaper, sometimes we're the wood. But let's look at what God says about using other people in our life. One way he does that is he, he uses other people in our life sometimes by placing us under the authority of other people. One of my favorite passages, and I taught through this, it was a matter of fact, it was the very first passage, a book I taught through when I became a pastor here, was 1 Peter. And if you want to go into 1 Peter and meet me there, in 1 Peter 2, I'm just going to point out a few things here in this passage. 1 Peter 2. And in this particular book, what he's saying is he's saying, this is to the church that is in a hostile environment, who's under persecution. And he's saying to this church, this is how you need to live with one another so that you represent Jesus well. This is how you live as you live under persecution. And it's interesting as he's talking about how you live under persecution. One of the things he focuses on the most is how Christians live together. Isn't that interesting? And so here he is. He goes into chapter 2. And, and he starts out chapter 2 by talking about how we relate to one another. And he says, putting aside all malice and all guile and all hypocrisy and envy and slander. He does all this stuff. But then he, he, he begins to change and he touches on a theme that he uses throughout the entire book. Turn over... To verse 13. And he uses this word for the first time, I believe, in the book that he uses many times in the book. And that word is submit. One of the ways that God uses to shape us and to form us into the image of Christ is through submission. And here in verse 13, what he says, he says, Submit yourselves to the Lord for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or as a governor who represents the king. Here we are, that's the first thing he says, submission to authority. But pay attention, because look into verse 18. Because then in verse 18, he goes a step further, and he goes, Servants, you submit to your masters. Then look to chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, you submit to your husbands. Chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, likewise to your wives. Chapter 3, verse 8. Let me sum it up for you. Be harmonious and sympathetic and brotherly and candy, kind, brotherly, kind-hearted and humble in spirit. And then he goes ahead and he says, not returning evil for evil, insult for insult, forgiving a blessing instead, and you were called to the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So he says, I'm summing up that you need to live in harmony and submission is a part of that. But then go a little bit further, chapter 5, verse 5. There he's begun to speak to the elders of the church, and he says, young men, submit to the elders. But then in chapters, and then finally, 
in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 6, he really, really summarizes it like this. He takes away all the context. He takes away and he doesn't say, you know, husbands to wives, wives to husband, servants to masters. He just says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. And then he says, but it's really not like you're humbling yourself to someone else because he says, you're humbling yourself before the hand of God. Because God has placed all these people over you. So when you humble yourselves, when you submit to these authorities, what you're really doing is you're submitting to God's authority. You're really submitting to God's hand. And so, you know, here we are, this situation of of humbling ourselves to authority is a, is a very difficult thing because sometimes we serve underneath, we work underneath, we live with people, we live around people who are in authority over us who are not good people. Now, I would encourage you that if you have to think this through a little bit further and you need to like investigate this, but you need to understand that nowhere in all these texts about humility and humbling and submission does it qualify that you should only submit to those who are good? It never says that. It says to submit. And that right there is where the sandpaper comes out. It's easy to submit to someone that you like and agree with, to someone who likes and agrees with you. It's difficult to submit to someone who's sandpaper and always rubbing up against you. But when we see that person as having purpose and intent that's eternal in our lives, and we understand that God's using people in our lives, people who are in authority over us, to shape us and form us into the image of Christ, then it begins to turn our eyes from being something of resistance to something of like thanking God that he has you in his plan. And that he is working on you and he's using authority to do that. So the very first one is people who are in authority over you is the first kind of people that he often uses to shape us and form us. But then the other kind of people that he uses are people in the pew around you. I know we don't have pews, but I like the PP thing there, you know. So it's the people in the pews around you. Flip over to Galatians 6. We're going to move around a little bit today. And in Galatians 6, let's look at this passage that the Lord has there for us. Brother, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself lest you too be tempted. Restore those who are struggling. Flip over to 2 Timothy 2.25. 2 Timothy 2.25. And there the Lord, there the Paul is writing, and he says, with gentleness, correcting those who are in in opposition, if perhaps God might grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. 
So Galatians 6 says that we are, should, should that if anyone is caught in, in, in trespass or anyone who's caught in sin, that we should go gently to restore them. And in 2 Timothy, he says again, gently correcting them. And then in Matthew 7, go to Matthew 7 now. There in Matthew 7, he continues, the Lord kind of brings up the same theme all over again. And there in Matthew 7, a very common passage. I'm going to start in verse 3. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? You know, you think about this, the speck thing. It, doesn't it kind of click a little bit to think about, you know, when he's talking about logs? Why, don't, why do you look at the sawdust in your brother's eye? But you don't notice the log that's in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck or the sawdust out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you can see clearly to help take the speck out of your brother's eye. What we people typically do with this passage is they look at this passage as one that's speaking about you know, the speck and the log, but they overlook that the passage is really very much talking about that it, still, it, doesn't, it doesn't say that once you found out you have something in your own eye to ignore your brother's speck. It says, fix yourself, then you can deal with your brother's speck. So the passage is still one here that says it's appropriate and right to look to your brother's eye and to address something that might be in it. It says that there. But then let's go to a more familiar passage. Stay in, chapter, in, in Matthew, but let's go to Matthew 18 now. It's another familiar passage to many people. Verse 15. And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Now see, that's the point of the process right there. You've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, and so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, go tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even before the church, then you... Treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, you exclude them from the fellowship of the church. Now, what's interesting is that most of us think immediately about verse 17 that says that you take them before the church, and even there, if it doesn't work out, if they're still repentant, unrepentant or unwilling to listen to you, that you exclude them from the church. That seems to be the focus of this passage. But it's really worthwhile noting the other verses that start it. And the verse that started is, is that if your brother sins, you go to him first. Just you and him. In the context of Crossing's history, we have probably only gone as far as taking someone before the whole church in some form or fashion probably two or three times, Maybe. I can think of two or three times, anyway, of my time here, being here for over 30 years. There have been at least two times in more recent memory in the past 12 or 13 years where we began to take someone publicly or began to work that process really thinking that's where it's going to lead, but they left the church and they stepped outside the boundaries of our ability to reach them in that regard. You know, and that's what often happens. But what's interesting, though, 
is that verse 15, go to your brother, happens all the time. And that many of us might not realize that when we approach another brother with a question mark about conduct or activity or words, that we have entered into this Matthew 18 process. Because you see, Matthew 18 happens all the time, but it's not always verse 17 that happens. It's verse 15 that happens a lot. And there are some times when the process moves to you know, taking it before others or taking it before the church or something like that. But it happens just between individuals often. And this is the way I want us to approach. And, and, and thinking about approaching someone like this, imagine that you're going out to someone. You know, let's just say that you have a brother or sister that is in a questionable area or even blatantly in sin. And so imagine them as being out in the deep water, out off the Jersey Shore, with the needles floating around them, out in that deep water. And you see them out there, and you think, wow, they look like they're in trouble. And you know what? None of us would ever go, well, that's someone else's problem, and you walk away. No one would ever do that. Anyone who sees it happening says, we must do something about this. And if you're not a swimmer, you're going to find somebody who's a swimmer and say, can you go out there? Can you take this life preserver to them and go out there and rescue them? Because that person's in trouble out there. See, if it was like that, down at the shore in the deep water where someone's in trouble, we would never walk away from them. We would absolutely address the problem. But see, that's exactly what the issue is when we see a brother or sister in sin. They're in deep water and they're struggling. And it's very possible that they could go under. But in the local church, all the time, all the time. I don't want to get involved. They'll get mad at me. They won't like me. They won't talk to me. They'll cut off our relationship. I'll, I'll damage the relationship. I'm not going to do that. Well, think about that. Think about that thought process. Because what just happened? What just happened? There's someone out there in deep water, and they're about to drown And so we stood there on the shore and went, that person's drowning. Oh, my. But if I went out there, I'd get wet. If I went out there, they might drag me under. If I went out there, they might not want help. I'm okay. I'll leave them alone. And no one would do that. But when we see each other here in the body of Christ in that same position in regard to a sin, we do it all the time. We do it all the time. We go, eh, I just don't want to get involved. I'm busy. It would be difficult. Darn right. It would be awkward. Absolutely. It might even be painful. No doubt. It usually is. But what are we talking about? We're talking about people that we call brother 
and sister in Christ. And we talk about that like we love each other unless it's going to get awkward. Unless it's going to get a little dicey. Unless it's going to get a little bit maybe even painful. And then it's like, I'm not sure if I love them that much. Think about the passage we looked at last week where, um, where the Lord was talking to the, the man and, and he said, well, you know, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, you know, the greatest command is love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And the second, of the, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. If you're out there drowning, do you want someone to say, I'm sorry, you might be mad at me if I come and save you. So I'm going to leave you out there. No. And so if someone is in sin, do we go, you know what? I'm sorry that you're in sin, but it's going to get awkward. You know, you know, if we're talking about loving someone like we love ourselves, if I'm drowning, please come after me. I would appreciate it. If I'm in sin, please come after me. I might not appreciate it, but I need it. And so do you. So do all of us. This is where, you know, we begin to take all these things seriously. Where when we see someone who's in deep water, that they might be going under, and we wouldn't want that to happen to them. You know, matter of fact, James 5, 19 through 20, it says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And with that in mind, we can think about approaching a friend as an act of love. And we talked about that last week. That if we're going to go into relationships, we are going to get hurt. And it's a risky thing. And it's something that is unpleasant a lot, quite honestly. And yet here the passage says, that when we do this, we've saved one. You know, the other passage earlier said that we, we saved them. We rescue them. We are rescuing them. Because think about, I mean, going under the waves and drowning is that physical illustration. But in a spiritual context, it's like they're, they're out there gasping salt water. And, and you know, and choking and we're like going, ah, wow, going out there with them, that looks like that's going to be kind of awkward. I, I don't think I really want to get involved in that. And so we stay on the shore and we watch it happen. I say, that's really too bad. They were nice. They were, didn't you like them? Yeah, I liked them. Yeah, they were great people. Wonder what happened. Let me tell you what happened. You saw them drowning and you stood on the shore instead of going out there and get them. That's what happened. That's what happened. And so when you see a brother or a sister succumb to sin, and you knew you should have said something, and you didn't, don't think what a shame it was that they made a wrong choice. Think a little bit about how you made a wrong choice too by staying safe. Because all of a sudden, you weren't loving your neighbor as you loved yourself. You were loving yourself more than you loved your neighbor. You were thinking, I don't want to do that. 
You know why I don't want to do that? Because I'm really more about me than I am about them. I mean, you know, that's the place where the rubber meets the road in a very uncomfortable, unpopular way. Where we have to step out and we step into situations that are unpleasant and hurtful at times. Now, let me just bring up another thought here. Keep in mind, you know, talking about swimming out to help somebody, that as you are swimming out to save this person, Galatians and 2 Timothy both speak of gentleness as we seek to rescue them. Galatians 6 says, consider yourself, they both speak of of being gentle. But they also both say something else as well. Galatians 6 does, and then Matthew 7 does. Galatians 6 says, as you're swimming out there, consider yourself, lest you be tempted as well. Matthew 7 spoke a moment ago about the sawdust and the log. It says that before you get out there, Check yourself. Check yourself. Both of these these verses encourage us to swim out to them, but they also encourage us to consider our own life before we jump in the water. So perhaps you see a friend struggling with an issue, and because you're out there in the deep water yourself, you're struggling with the sin as well. These passages encourage us to humbly but urgently deal with our sin even as we're dealing with the sin of others. Because if we're in trouble ourselves, we can't rescue someone else. Let's think about it from a different angle. Most of us, when we think of these passages, our immediate thought is, I hate thinking about having to approach someone like that. But the scripture teaches us that sin deceives and it blinds people. And so it's very likely that if you are out in the deep water, that you might not know that you have a sin matter of your own. That you've been deceived into thinking that all that sucking in salt water is good for you. And it's not. The first steps toward us helping someone is to look at ourselves and examine ourselves. Let's track back a little bit further. Let's say that you're fervently seeking to follow Christ. Let's say that you are reading daily and you're praying daily and and you really are seeking to obey God and you're witnessing and you're serving. And in the middle of all that, in the middle of all that, we can still and we will still find sin in our lives that needs to be dealt with. We, we should pray that God would send someone out to us while we're in that deep water and that we would recognize what's happening as they approach. You know, you know let's just say you go out for a swim and you're out there in the deep water and you think you're having a great time swallowing the salt water, bobbing around out there, you know. And then you see someone swimming out towards you and you go, oh, look, someone wants to come have fun with me. And then you realize that they're not coming out to have fun with you. They're coming out to save you. We should be thinking that if I want to be molded into the image of Christ, that when someone approaches me, I need to say, 
I need to hear what you have to say because I know God uses other people in our lives. And so instead of wrestling with the fact that someone would come to you, we need to think that God sent them and I need to listen. What is God saying to me in this? And that as someone approaches us, we welcome that. And so, you know, the fact of the matter is that, is that none of us relish the thought of walking up to someone else and saying, I need to talk to you about some area of your life. But the other side of the coin is none of us relishes the thought of someone coming up to us and say, I need to talk to you about something in your life. And yet, as a believer who wants to follow the Lord and be shaped by his hand in our life, we have to recognize that those times are necessary. Those times of being pruned, as in John 15, those times of being pruned are necessary. Those times of having to have, you know, the rough edges be sanded off are necessary. Because we don't usually yield ourselves to it of our own will. We usually have to have God step into our space, bring one of our brothers or sisters with us, and begin to use sandpaper on us. And when that's happening, we have to realize that we should thank God for that person coming to us. And actually, we should praise God that he is interested in my life and he is invested in my life and he sent someone to me to draw my attention to my sin. And these things are usually, they're usually painful. And they can be embarrassing. But we can and we should see that as being God's actual hand. Picking up a tool and working in our life. And so when we think about relationships, and when we think about what God is doing and how he's shaping and forming, and how he chooses unique tools at any given time, how he may be sending someone into your life to shape and form you, or he may be sending you into someone else's life to shape and form them. That's another value of relationships in our local churches. Next week, there's another passage that talks about bearing each other's burdens, very related to what we're talking about here, and we're going to be talking about that next week. So let me just tell you, there is nothing fun about this, but there is stuff that is good about this and beneficial and a blessing in it. So let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for um, the way that your spirit is at work in our lives and the way that you put us in connection with people that we need to be in connection with. Teach us to have a humble heart. Teach me, teach me to have a humble heart to be willing to listen, even eagerly listen to those who come to point something out to us. Lord, start with me first. And Lord, each of us, to look to you to shape us and mold us in ways that are maybe not our favorite, but in ways that are necessary. And we thank you that you put us in relationship with each other here in this room and that we are knit together by the Spirit of God 
for the purpose of becoming more and more like Jesus. And we thank you for all these things. In your name we pray. Amen.